Welcome to Rock Candy. <laughs> it's going great so so far. This is going really good, guys. Your weekly podcast of sweet treats into musical mayhem, stories, and madness. Yes. And drunken debauchery. And drunken debauchery. With your two drunk lady hosts, I'm Maggie. I'm Ashley. <laughs> and this week, we are recording in a new location for temporary purposes. We even have a producer. Yeah. We're fucking it's, bougie as fuck this week. It's like we're professionals or something. Yeah, but we're not. No. Nope. At all. No. But trying counts. But we can pretend for one day. Yeah. It's fine. Just, I, I would like to say a special thank you to my boyfriend, Mike, who has helped us a lot. Oh, yeah. And he is putting up with a lot of shenanigans. <laughs> He's in the other room recording us right now. And I'm sure a lot of eye rolls are going to come <laughs> our way. <laughs> they are, though. Sorry, Mike. Thank you, Mike. I owe you a pie. But we have, we, we're still, you know, dedicated and diligent. We're bringing you all the hits. And this week, we are bringing you... In utero, by, album review by Nirvana. Bow, 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 bow. So we, we, <laughs> no, there's no air horns in Nirvana I, at all. No, it's like the last place you should put an air horn. <laughs> so <laughs> the last couple of weeks we've been doing like super upbeat and super happy shit, and you know Andrew WK and Weird Al. Yeah, granted, Nirvana isn't known to be super happy. No, which is oh, fine. Yeah, Nirvana's a bit of a bummer. <laughs> A little some, bit. In some ways. But um, April is kind of like the anniversary of Kurt Cobain's death. Mm -hmm. So I kind of really wanted to do something that had to do with Nirvana and Kurt because of that. Because I totally missed his birthday, which was in February. So, oh, yeah. That's right. So When's his birthday? February 20th. Oh, he's a cusp. Yes. Mm. Mm -hmm. Cusps are interesting. Me too. No, you're, like, right off the cusp. You're a pretty true Capricorn, I feel like. No. Mm. No. Mm. No. I have a I lot of Sagittarius in me. A lot of Sag. <laughs> Sag Cap. Sag Cap. No, I'm a true blue Pisces. <laughs> I am 100% pure Pisces. You know who else was a Pisces? Kesha. Kurt Cobain. Well, he's on the cusp. But he's a Pisces. He's an Aquarius Pisces. <sighs> Aquarius's Pipecarious. <laughs> anyway. So let's just get into this. <laughs> uh, as far as your drinking choice for this evening, may we suggest from Brewery Omegang from Cooperstown, New York, what what? <laughs> Nirvana IPA. It is it's, perfect. I did not have to do a whole lot of looking oh, for, this. for once. For once, I was not spending a half an hour. In the uh, beer store, listening to all of Desposito. Oh my god, they do play the weirdest music there. It is. It's very, very strange. But I just went in and out with this one. It was great. Let's do this. All right. This is a, this is a big bitch. Let's hit it. All right. So, In Utero is the third and last studio album by the seminal grudge band Nirvana, mm -hmm. obviously. It was released in September 21st, 1993 to critical acclaim entering the Billboard 200 chart at number one. Oh, shit. Eventually, it sold 15 million copies worldwide and has been certified platinum five times. Damn. So it's a big fucking deal. That It's a big fucking deal album. I, I am not going to lie. I can't 
remember which songs are on in utero. Uh, yeah. I mean, we'll get to that, but... I mean, there's... A lot of people kind of can't because a lot of people didn't like this this album as much as they like Nevermind. Nevermind was fucking gigantic. Mm. And then this album was so different from Nevermind. I think it put off a lot of people and they were kind of confused by it because I, they didn't really understand the sound. Yeah, I remember liking it. I definitely didn't dislike it. I think just maybe there were more singles off of Nevermind. Yeah, maybe. well, I mean... This putting out the singles from In Utero got kind of cut short because of Kurt's death. I guess. Um, I think was it Penny Royalty was supposed to be the third yes. um single, and they never put it out because Kurt died before they could. Oh, <coughs> Jesus! All right. So, um, it also signaled a fairly drastic change in Nirvana's sound, like we just said, um, from their previous album Nevermind. And even though it was well received, it didn't do as well. As their massively popular major label debut. Right. Um, so let me give you a little background about what was going on in Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love up until the beginning of recording in February 93. Shit was fucked up. In the <laughs> you year, don't say. In the year leading up to uh, them starting recording for this album. Kurt and Courtney had just gotten married in February of 1992, and Courtney was already pregnant with their daughter, Frances Bean, when they got married. Oh. Frances Bean was born in August, and shortly afterward, Vanity Fair published a scathing article about Courtney that not so subtly indicated Courtney used heroin while she was pregnant. I remember this. This resulted in the Los Angeles Department of Child and Family Services temporarily taking their daughter away, as well as the Cobains being hounded by tabloid reporters. Right. So Courtney insisted that she was misquoted in this article. Right. Because um, the author of the article pretty much said she was on heroin, and Courtney insisted that she completely stopped using heroin as soon as she found out she was pregnant. Right. So she stopped before i think before the first trimester was even up which okay yeah i mean fine i mean come on how many people are pregnant don't know it and are drinking like crazy or granted you you shouldn't be doing those things in the first place you shouldn't like i'll give you i'll give you alcohol i'll give you smoking marijuana i'll even give you cigarettes like i'll give you a lot of things not gonna give you heroin no why are you doing heroin heroin and meth again that's where i draw the line i'll give you cocaine i will not give you heroin and also as soon as her daughter was born both of them just used just right again kept on using yeah. so you, okay sure you stopped when you found out you were pregnant maybe congratulations it didn't teach you anything no <laughs> so on top of all the pressure from the media kurt's pervasive stomach problems were getting worse and worse mm. he claimed he had stomach problems of an unknown origin for years and the only thing that helped ease his pain was drugs so, incessant media scrutiny plus painful stomach issues equals so much heroin use. <laughs> By now, he had long had a full-fledged heroin addiction. Oh, wow. But these two things, media scrutiny and medical issues, would be major themes in, in utero. Mm-hmm. Kurt makes constant references to medical devices, diseases like cancer, medicine, laxatives, and antacids. And more, f- more than frequently made references to how his life has become tabloid fodder. Right. Often these were accompanied by promises to get revenge on the media as well. Oh. Kurt was obsessed with revenge. Oh. Like. I did not know that. As, as kind of like, as nice of a guy as he was and as like kind of a loner, 
he talked about revenge a lot <laughs> on everyone. I wonder how much of that was the heroin talking <laughs> too, though. You know, like how yeah. much of that is like just I'm really high. I think. Um, I don't know, because he he started using drugs when he was, like, 13, mm. um, and a, a lot of his notebooks, his journals, his poems and stuff, they all talked about revenge. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> when you're a teenager, you talk about that shit oh, all the man. time. You don't really mean it. Seriously. But he kept with that shit. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, when I was a teenager, I I had the most fucked up stories that I would write about getting revenge. So, oh, yeah. You know, you just, when you're that young, you don't take we that seriously. We all wrote really bad poetry when we oh, were young no. teenagers. <laughs> no one understands me. <laughs> I'm just going to sit in my room and listen to Stained. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> oh, shut up. <laughs> no. That's another, that's another song for another episode. <laughs> Oh, we're never talking about stained on oh, in depth. Ugh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so it was the beginning of 1993. Nevermind was still fresh in everyone's minds. Nirvana just played two very successful grunge-heavy shows in Brazil with their Ooh. good friends L7, and they were turning their heads towards recording a new album. For their follow-up to Nevermind, Kurt wanted a very specific sound and a very specific producer to work with. He wanted Steve Albini who at the time was gaining popularity in the grunge crowd for his sparse, bare-bones recording style. Mm -hmm. Up until recording in utero, Steve Albini had already produced albums for the Pixies. He did Surfer Rosa, which was a very popular Pixies album, Um, The Jesus Lizard and The Breeders. After Nirvana, he would see even more success by producing a shit ton of albums for just about everybody. Yeah, he's a main runner in the game. Right, but... Mostly Super Chunk, John Spencer Blues Explosion, Fugazi, PJ Harvey, Bush, Veruca Salt, Floggy Molly Mogwai, Godspeedy Black Ember, Gogo Bordello, and Cheap Trick. Damn. Among many. I feel like in the game of which one of these is not like the other, I'd pick Cheap Trick. <laughs> Out of all of those, like, really? Cheap Trick? Okay. And he did a lot with Cheap Trick. This <laughs> is weird. Um... He was often branded more as a recorder or engineer rather than a producer because he usually recorded a band playing a song the whole way through in one take and rarely made any changes in post-production. Any coughs, sniffs, offhand remarks made during recording were usually left in the track. And you can even hear this in a couple tracks on In Utero, like Serve the Servants and Radio Friendly Unit Shifter, where Kurt is talking over the music. You can't really make out what he's saying, but you you can hear him say shit. Okay, you guys, you want to get some Taco Bell after this? <laughs> I'm really hungry. That's probably why he had so many stomach issues. Just can't be in Taco, Taco Bell. Bell. <laughs> <laughs> At first, Albini didn't really want to work with Nirvana. He thought that they were, quote unquote, typical of the Seattle sound of the time. Oh. And just R.E.M. with a fuzz box. Oh, damn. Oh, he was that's not nice. shade. He was not nice. I'm saying it. But he worked with the band anyway, calling it an act of mercy. (laughs) He understood the position Nirvana were in, a small town band with a sudden massive fame that they didn't necessarily want, that was also susceptible to being ripped off by any other producer just trying to cash in on their popularity. Right. Which, you know, is, I get it. It's nice. But also, don't act like you're doing them a favor. They don't like, really need a favor. They want you to produce that. They album. like you, genuinely respect you. Don't come in like, I'll do you this favor because they're already platinum 
artists. Right. They don't need the help. They're, They're asking, asking you because they it. want to be artistic. Right. So, like, chill, brah. <laughs> so, like, motherfucking Teresa. Saint, <laughs> Saint Steve Albini bestowed his holy presence upon Nirvana <laughs> and accepted the job as producer. Am I not merciful? <laughs> That's that's really thank you, Commodus Albini. The, that's really what the movie Gladiator was about. Steve Albini, <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix took all of his inspiration from Steve Albini. <laughs> oh my god, that'd be wonderful. So, recording started in early February 1993 in Patch Derm Studios in Cannon Falls, Minnesota, and this place was in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the woods. There's nothing around them. Mm -hmm. The only thing they had to do was focus on recording. Damn, all right. So there was the specific intention of both the band and Albini to make this album very different from Nevermind, and Albini proved to be the perfect person to help the band accomplish the sound they were looking for. Whereas Nevermind was polished and perfected, Nirvana really wanted their next album to be rougher, raunchier, and a little unrefined. And I think that's what we get with yeah. In Utero, compared yeah. to Nevermind, at least. Yeah, Nevermind has this um, more produced album feel. Yeah. Almost. Yeah, Nevermind was very produced. Yeah. It was very shiny. Very it was very clean. And that's not what In Utero is yeah. at all. In Utero kind of goes back to their roots. Right. All songs were played live, meaning drums, guitar, and bass were all played together in one recording. Nice. Vocals and second gu guitar tracks were added later, but that was all that was added. Oh. Nothing else was added. Kurt even said later that it was the easiest recording they've ever done. It was helped by the fact that both parties were pleasantly surprised at the other's professionalism and easygoing personalities. <laughs> And recording ended up being a pretty pleasant experience for everyone, despite the fact that Kurt was previously convinced that Albini was a sexist pig, which, yeah, I'm pretty I sure he is. gonna um, say. He had, mm. he, had a, he had a reputation for being a real big misogynist, and he was also in a band with the ill-advised name of Rape Man. What? Yeah. What? So... What? Thumbs up for that guy. Gross. <laughs> it's really fucking gross. Gross. So Kurt, was it like a playoff of Rain Man? <laughs> I I have no idea what the fuck it was part of, but it, yeah, no, that was really bad. Instead of being bad obsessed idea. with people's court, he was like obsessed with Maury. <laughs> like maybe. I don't, no. I don't know. I'm trying to rewrite this movie in my head now. <laughs> no, don't. That's bad. Yeah, it is bad. Fucking brain. Anyway, Kurt already had many of the songs written before going into the studio, so recording only took two weeks. Damn. And actually, recording itself only took six days. That's it. That's old school, just going in, getting it done. Yeah, well, That's when, awesome. when you're in the middle of the woods in Montana, you have nothing else to do but focus on recording for 10 to 12 hours a day. Yeah. So, of course, you're going to get it done really quickly, especially if you come in with songs already written. Right. So the other eight days were spent kind of fucking around. Days were spent waiting for the band's equipment to be shipped to them because Ugh. they didn't bother showing up to the studio with it. <laughs> what? They spent some time contemplating having someone FedEx a boombox to them because they didn't feel like going out and buying one. <laughs> and time was also wasted deciding if they should fly their own guitar tech out to the studio because Kurt couldn't tune his guitar correctly. <laughs> 
bless his heart, he was not a good guitar player. Mm. Very, very prolific uh, lyric writer, and he could write a real good melody in the mm-hmm. middle of a rock song. But dude really was not a good guitar player. <laughs> you would think so by album three. <laughs> you think he'd have his shit to together. Guitar. You would think he'd have his shit together, but just at least tune your guitar, bro. I, I guess I can tune a guitar, and I'm a garbage guitar player. <laughs> What are you doing? But eventually they started recording and things really took off after that. Now, my question is, and I think this is really important and we need to know. At this point in time, was Dave Grohl addicted to fresh pots? (laughs) I think he was still too juiced up on, you know, hormones and being young to really need the fresh pots. (laughs) He was a little string bean back in Nirvana. He was was a young boy. He was a baby. Did you see that face on the cover of this? Oh, I should mention that um, most of the information that I have in my notes came from the book um, Come As You Are, The Story of Nirvana by Michael Azarad. And the picture on the cover, at least of the version that I have, which is wicked fucking old because I got this <laughs> thing when I was in like eighth grade. Um, baby face day crawl. For real. It doesn't even really look like it. It doesn't at all. he's just such a baby. I know. And now he has so much like head hair. He's got they such like, a giant head. Yeah. But in that on that cover, it's so tiny. <laughs> but, throughout, baby. but throughout the whole book, like, everybody kept mentioning how much of a goofball he is. Like, oh, yeah. Steve Albini literally said he liked Dave the most, not just because he was a, a really great drummer, but right. because he was, quote unquote, goofy. Yeah. No. <laughs> He's I, totally goofy. Dave Grohl is... is um, a celebrity friend crush of mine. Yeah. I want to be friends with Dave Grohl. Yeah. He looks like a great fucking time. Mainly because of the Fresh Pots video. <laughs> yeah, that, that definitely <laughs> helped to sway me over into thinking good friend material right there. Yes, definitely. But um, Albini allowed the band members to decide which takes were the best, in contrast to most producers who make those decisions themselves. Oh. Once all the recording was done, and Kurt's vocals only took six hours to complete, Wow! mixing was done within five days, and sessions were completed by February 26th. That's... Like, not even a month. Boom. Done. Now, the title in utero comes from a poem Courtney Love wrote. Huh. Um, she was actually the only visitor to the studio in the two weeks they were there, which caused a bit of a disruption. No surprise. I feel like we've seen this before somewhere. <laughs> Where have we seen this before? It was an album review that we did. Oh, Yoko Ono. Oh, yeah. Mm, that's right. Oh, and also um, the Riot Girl episode. Mm, yes. <sighs> it's all leading up to this, isn't it? <laughs> so no one really went into detail about what happened except for, except for the studio's chef. Uh, <laughs> okay. She she claims Courtney mostly criticized Kurt's work and was confrontational with everybody there. Surprise, you don't say. <gasps> what? Uh, the farthest Albini ever said on the subject was, I don't feel like embarrassing Kurt by talking about what a psycho hose beast his wife is. <laughs> She's a psycho hose beast. <laughs> Do you think he got that from Wayne? Oh, he must have gotten that from Wayne's Because Wayne's World was out at this point, right? Oh, I don't remember. Yeah, because Wayne's World came out in 82. So he oh, had yeah. to get yeah, okay because yeah, yeah. I was like Wayne's World. He was get it not from the him. originator of Psycho Hose Beast. No, so help me God, he is not. <laughs> Rape Man doesn't get to be the originator of Psycho Hose nope. Beast. No, nope. <laughs> no. 
So Dave and Courtney also got into a big fight, but no one will discuss it. Wow. Well, but Dave Girl tries to keep it real classy about Courtney. Like, he really doesn't like her. He, it's very obvious that he has a whole lot of beef with her, but he will not talk about it. No, because he's trying to be professional, you know, <laughs> arguably. And yeah. I, I, I feel like I heard recently, like, they buried the hatch. Remember, but I, I feel like they just, just decided... We'll be civil. Um, I think they kind of had to because there was a dispute between uh, releasing Nirvana's um, music mm. for a box set that came out for... Oh, what the fuck was it called? Uh, no, there was an album that came out and I think one of them wanted to release it and the other one was like, um, you can't without my permission because I own part of the rights. Right. I think I think Dave didn't want it to come out. Um, and hmm. there was some legal tension there. So they had to pretty much agree to disagree and... And it came out. So okay. pretty much, I'm pretty sure Courtney won because, you know, she, she needs the money. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, Kurt originally wanted to call the album, I Hate Myself and I Want to Die. Oh, <laughs> But bassist Chris Novoselic was able to convince him otherwise, as he was afraid they'd get a lawsuit or two slapped against them with a title like that. Right. Which, totally, totally acceptable. As far as the artwork goes, everyone is familiar with the anatomical model with the angel wings mm -hmm. on the front cover. A lot of people might not know that the back cover was a collage designed by Kurt himself. That makes sense, though. Um, it features a handful of model fetuses, turtles, and body parts lying on a bed of lilies and orchids. The fetuses and the inclusion of the track called Rape Me were probably what put Walmart and Kmart over the edge as they refused to stock the CD when it was released. <laughs> huh. That's that's strange. And I very I, don't know why. I very much remember being like 13-year-old Ashley who had a very serious Nirvana obsession at that point and um going to Walmart in Hudson, New York and picking up the In Utero album and looking at it and I'm like this isn't what it's supposed to look like. And then I saw, I they had changed rape me to waif me, and I saw that. And I'm like, what the fuck? What? Yeah, they what? changed. They changed that, what? and um, they also changed the collage to have none of the fetuses in it. Yeah, it was bullshit. But uh, they claimed it was because. There was a lack of consumer demand, which is total bullshit. <laughs> and Kmart even said it didn't fit within our merchandise mix. Which okay. is so stupid. Okay. But <laughs> once the album artwork was reworked, it excluded the fetuses and Rape Me was changed to Waif Me. And a different version of the song Penny Royalty was included. And then these stores were pleased enough to stock it. And I would have just said, you know what? I don't need to sell my shit at Kmart or Walmart. Well, that's the thing. Both, I think, Kurt and Chris were like, you know, we really didn't want to do it. But we did it because we knew what it was like to grow up in a really small town with only Aww. chain stores available to us. So we want our music to be available to those kids. So we'll change it so that they can at least hear it. Damn it. All right. Well, that's... That's really You can't sweet. really okay. argue with that. I can't argue with that. Yeah. That's that's solid logic. Yeah. So although the album debuted on the charts at number one, it received some mixed reviews. A lot of critics love the album and its huge contrast to the squeaky clean polish of Nevermind, while others were completely confused by it. Some were happy Nirvana didn't go full punk rock, but some thought that they weren't punk rock enough. Yeah, sounds about right. 
And in a sad stroke of irony, one critic from Q Magazine said, if this is how Cobain is going to develop, the future is lighthouse bright. Doesn't that make you want to stab yourself in the face? (sighs) I hope that guy felt real (laughs) shitty in April of 94, right? Yeah. 94, yeah. So I really hope April 94 rolls around and he's like, ooh, I'm a dickbag. Ooh. Like, I hope he couldn't write an article for a couple years after that. <laughs> you can't just, like, you can't just go and erase that. It's printed. We know you said it. <laughs> we know what you said. Granted, he didn't know, but still. But still. Come on. But anyway, let's finally get into the song. Yeah, music. <laughs> so the first song on this album is called Serve the Servants. Well, now that I'm, like, looking through the tracks, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, yep, I remember this. I remember stealing this album from my brother when he went away to college, mm-hmm. and he came home and said, give me back my Nine Inch Nails and Nirvana. <laughs> Why did you steal my albums? And I was like, because I really like music. And he's like, stop being an asshole. Were they CDs or cassettes? CDs. Well, you should have taped it from the CD to the cassette. I, did. I got there eventually. Or a CD to a CD, because at that point, we could do that with yeah. our six-disc changers oh my god i loved my six disc changer (laughs) constant rotation fucking right all night long my parents hated me (laughs) so anyway uh serve the servants is almost like a letter from kurt to his childhood and his career the first lines are teenage angst has paid off well now i'm bored and old Acknowledging that his career jumped off of all the angst of Nirvana's first two albums and the perception that Kurt was this brooding, depressed figure screaming into a microphone. Being this angsty rock star sounds sexy, but really, Kurt just wants to be a normal dude. Right. You know, hence bored and old. He just kind of wants to just hang out and just be a dude. It's kind of like I said in our Riot Girl episode, Kurt Cobain should have never been famous. Absolutely not. He could not handle it. No. Which is fine. I mean, I couldn't handle being famous. Are you kidding me? Well, I mean, that's what this whole album is about, basically, is how he can't handle media scrutiny. He can't handle being, you know, the, you know, in the public eye all the time. It's like he's a god to some, and then he is the fucking worst to others. Right. And especially after that Vanity Fair article came out. He was, like, crucified yeah. because everybody thought he was this horrible father. And, yeah, he was on really awful hard drugs, but he still loved his kid and yeah. he still wanted to take care of her. He just and, really needed someone to get him off the fucking drugs. Right. And the same c- could be said of Courtney. She was way more psychotic, though. No, I'm pretty sure Courtney Love definitely has psychopathic tendencies. To say the least. To say the least. <laughs> <laughs> um... <laughs> But the song continues to address his childhood, his parents' divorce, and his father in particular. He repeats the line, the legendary divorce is such a bore, referring uh, to how magazines and media really tried to say that his parents' divorce caused him to be so angry and brooding. Oh, my God. And the divorce almost became a legend in its own right. And 
I think like this was really the time, especially because his parents' divorce was so uh, scrutinized and so like hyped up to be this really big event that caused him to be such a depressed an angry person when did did they get divorced when he was a kid yeah he was a kid when they got divorced okay but that was supposed to be the thing that turned him into the person he was then and why he was so angry and so angsty call him bullshit yeah but then i feel like that's kind of what started that whole trend of oh you're from a broken home so you must Uh, be this angsty depressed kid it's the times right So I guess what he's trying to say is, yeah, his parents' divorce influenced him and his music a lot. And the media made a big deal about how the divorce affected him. But you couldn't you can't hold on to that event trying to squeeze music out of one experience forever. It gets boring. And the idea that Kurt's angst comes from his parents' divorce gets boring. Right. You you, it's not always about that one event. Yeah. Like divorce sucks. It, it can be very traumatic, especially depending on why they got divorced and right. the, the story behind it. But if it, it happens when you're seven or eight, by the time you're 25, other things have happened yeah, in the meantime. You can't, you can't say that that's the only thing that would ever fuck somebody up. Right. Plenty of things can fuck you up. Like heroin. <laughs> <laughs> so he also addresses his father, kind of chastising him for not being a better one. Like, yeah, he had a dad you know this guy that would show up once in a while but he never had someone he could call a father but also he's not angry about it he kind of just doesn't care right yeah um so the next song is called scentless apprentice and i'm surprised i said that correctly i'm proud of you Sandless Apprentice is one of my favorite Nirvana songs. Yeah. And it's based on subject matter alone, oh. is why it's one of my favorites. It's based on the 1985 book Perfume, the Story of a Murderer. Oh. Written by Patrick Suskind. Um, this was one of Kurt's favorite books and is actually one of mine, too. I've never heard of it. Um, I actually read this book in junior high because I found out it was one of Kurt Cobain's favorite books and it became one of mine it's a really fucking good book okay if you just want to be like really deeply taken into a book fucking read it it's fantastic all right if you don't watch the movie a movie was made based on the novel only a few years ago oh and it was directed by the same guy that did run lola run tom uh tom is it the same is it the movie by the same name as the book yes it's called perfume Story okay. of a murderer. Because I, I feel like I remember people making a big deal about him making another movie, mm-hmm. and I wonder if that was the one. But seriously, it was the only movie I have ever seen that was based on a book that I have read 
that like pulled the scenes in my head straight out of my my head and put them on a screen. That's awesome. It was the one and only time that has ever happened, and it was fantastic. Ooh, Super right. good. I don't have time to read books that aren't about music, so well, you I'm going to watch the movie. You can borrow the movie, because I have it, and you can borrow it. I'm going to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it, so, the story is about an orphan boy in 18th century France named Jean-Baptiste Grenouille. Grenouille? Jean-Baptiste. Grenouille. Grenouille? I'm going to say Grenouille. I don't know, but Grenouille means... It means frog in French. Oh. <laughs> but okay. so that can tell you a lot about the character. Like Jean-Baptiste frog. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to call him Jean-Baptiste frog. <laughs> frog. Um, but he was... Say real American, too. Frog. frog. <laughs> Jean-Baptiste. Oh my frog. god. Jean Baptiste. <laughs> Frag. Frag. Oh my god. What the, I don't know why they're from the Midwest, but they are. <laughs> Jean-Baptiste Grenouille was born with an extraordinary sense of smell, but no bodily scent himself. Weird. His ex- Weird. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> His exceptional sense of smell led him to become a perfumer's apprentice. Apprentice. Hence, scentless this apprentice. apprentice. <laughs> That's it. Blah, but his obsession with creating the perfect perfume ends up leading him to murder. Oh. The murder part aside, this is a character Kirk could very much relate to. Grenouille was ostracized from society at every turn, and his lack of scent made him an outcast. Kirk kind of felt, felt the same way leading up to the recording of In Utero, with his custody battles and the media hounding his every move. Oh. In the chorus, he screams, go away, over and over again, essentially screaming at the media to leave him and his family alone. That's fair. And this is the only song on the album where writing credit was not given to Kurt alone. It was split between all three band members, and Dave actually came up with the central guitar riff. He showed it to Kurt one day. And Kurt actually thought it was a pretty contrived riff. Oh. <laughs> but he decided Hold to- Hold up, Kurt. But like, really? But come on. You don't know how to tune your guitar. <laughs> so maybe take a back seat to Dave Grohl. <laughs> Let Dave show you how it works. Seriously. <laughs> Let your drummer show you how to play guitar. Think about it. Oh, but he decided to go with it anyway just to make Dave feel better. I mean, I guess. I still feel like that's really patronizing, though. <laughs> absolutely and, and is. unwarrantedly. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Chris even wrote the second section of the song, and it was the most collaborative song they had ever written. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. That's nice. Yeah, because every other song on the album and every other album is Kurt and Kurt alone. This is my song. I wrote it. Yeah. Guys, I wrote the song. <laughs> But unlike Ringo, he gets to fucking put every one of his songs on the album. Not just on the refrigerator. God damn it. <laughs> anyway, so the next song on the album is Heart Shaped Box. Which you all might know. And if you don't, what, what are you doing you with been? your life? Wish I could eat your cancer when you turn back. Hey, wait, I got a 
really vividly remember this music video. Oh, when yeah. I hear this song, the music video immediately pops into my head. I think this is probably their most popular music video. Oh, yeah. Um, And also one of the most played on MTV. Because I remember the Come As You Are. Mm-hmm. And, of course, everybody remembers Smells Like Teen Spirit. But this one was... It was played on super heavy rotation. Right. And it also had very saturated, bright colors that really caught your eye. I was going to say, is it weird to say it's a really pretty music video? No, it is. It It's... The subject matter isn't exactly... <laughs> yeah, it's a little dark. But it it's really pretty. Yeah. And actually... But I'm fucked. It's fine. I can think something messed up's pretty. I usually think some messed up right, stuff like, is we're pretty. We're not the most PG people. Right. Right. So... Um, so actually the video was directed by Anton Corbin. Oh. Um, all of the, or print, I think all of the videos off of Nevermind were directed by Kevin Kerslake. Oh. Um, and they wanted him to, uh, do the video for Heart Shaped Box, but he, he brought up a couple treatments and nothing ever really came yeah. of it. So they went with Anton Corbin. Oh. And then after that video came out, Kevin Kerslick's well, like, well, pff, um, we had a deal, so I'm going to sue you. <laughs> <laughs> so he fucking sued him for copyright infringement. Are you, uh, like all, right. all these videos you did with these guys and now you're just going to sue him. But whatever. Ugh, That's okay. fine. Um, and actually... I hope after Kurt died, he felt like a piece of shit, too. <laughs> this episode might just turn into me being like, well, I hope you felt like a piece of shit in April 24... <laughs> or uh, April 1994. On Jesus April 8th, Christ. 1994. Fuck. <laughs> I was um, 10. But actually, um, I don't know if you remember, but in the video for Heart Sheep Box, there was a young girl who was dressed in, like, a white gown with yes. a peaked white hat. Yep. And eventually, like, the hat... F- flies off lands in a puddle of black shit and she's like then dressed in black um she was six years old when the video was made and just a couple years ago she reunited with dave grohl and he was like super excited to see her and i couldn't find a video or anything on it but if anybody can find a video on their reunion he was super stoked about it oh yeah it was super cute that's super cute but anyway, Heart Shape Box. Heart Shape Box. So <clears throat> this was one of those songs Kurt tried to write numerous times, but it never quite worked out. Mm-hmm. Then one day at a jam session with the band, and after being annoyed that Chris and Dave never fully contributed to songwriting, <sighs> Kurt tried one last time to finish the song, and somehow it worked this time. Okay. He finished the song, and it became the first hit off of In Utero. Kurt's official explanation of the song was to say it was about kids with cancer, but it's very clearly about Courtney and her and Kurt's almost scary codependence. Right. Hold on. on. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're going to try to tell me that the song that you clearly wrote about your unhealthy relationship with your girlfriend. No, it's about kids with cancer. Yeah. No, it's not. But see, this is going to be a trend with Kurt because... He constantly is either saying, well, this song doesn't mean anything about anything, or, yeah, it's about this thing, when it's clearly not about that thing. Oh, that's... Okay. And I think there's a reason that he does that, because he wants his songs to mean um, something to 
whoever is listening to it, but he wants them to, like, relate it to their own life. Right. He doesn't want to stick his songs into one interpretation when he wants the fan to interpret it the way it relates to their life. You know what I mean? I guess that's fair. Yeah. All right. But still, don't give some stupid fucking answer. Don't say it's about kids with cancer. Yeah, yeah it's not. Say it's not. about fucking, I don't know, dragonflies or some shit. But not kids with cancer. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. So everyone with slightly deeper than surface knowledge of Kurt and Courtney's relationship knows that it was extremely fucked up. Mm-hmm. The very definition of a toxic relationship. Right. Uh, many people claim that Courtney was extremely manipulative and, to put it bluntly, psychotic. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We said it. <laughs> she and <Hot> Courtney. takes. <laughs> Courtney Love is fucking psychotic, yeah, period. 100%. She and Kurt had an extreme, or she had Kurt on an extremely tight leash and lashed out at anyone that threatened their existence as a couple. So you can kind of interpret some of the lyrics in the song as Kurt acknowledging that harmful codependent relationship. Mm-hmm. I've been locked inside your heart sheet box for weeks. I've been yeah. drawn into your magnet tar pit trap. Yeah. And throw down your umbilical noose, um, umbilical noose so I can climb right back. Also, Courtney apparently had a collection of heart-shaped, box, heart-shaped candy boxes that she proudly displayed in her yeah. and Kurt's apartment. So it's pretty damn obvious the song wasn't about Cancer Kid infomercials. Cancer Kid infomercials. <laughs> Clearly, it is about Courtney. Yeah, that's uh, it's, that's pretty obvious. Yeah. Come on, Kurt. You're not, you're not fooling nobody. No. He tried. I'm trying counts. Anyway, next song is called Rape Me. <laughs> now the next song called Rape Me. <laughs> Rape me. Rape me, my friend. Rape me. Rape me. remember all the way back to 1992 sometimes to the 1992 mtv video music awards where i didn't have cable oh seriously still in 1992 i didn't have cable till 99 oh jesus christ i'm still still way ahead of me (sighs) well maybe some of your friends remember (laughs) (laughs) maybe some of our listeners remember (laughs) the 92 uh video music awards nirvana was a performer yeah and Initially, MTV said that they could play whatever song they wanted. Oh. And Kurt was like, okay, I'm going to play this new song called Rape Me. And MTV was like, oh, but you can't play that song. (laughs) You can play whatever you want. Ooh, but accept that. But then Kurt was like, no, I'm going to play it. And they were like, no, you can't play it. You're going to play Smells Like Teen Spirit. And they were like, no, we're not going to do that. So, um... They threatened to not play. Which you can't not have Nirvana play. Right. Especially in 1992. Yeah. Um, and then eventually they came to a agreement where they would play Lithium. Okay. So <laughs> it's it's the day of the music awards. Mm-hmm. They're all backstage. Mm-hmm. Uh, Guns N' Roses is also backstage. Oof. Oh. 
And this is where the infamous Guns N' Roses Nirvana feud began. Oh, yes, I do remember this. And Kurt and Axel started going at it. And then Courtney and Stephanie Seymour started going at it. And then uh, Chris and uh, Duff started going at it. And then (laughs) they were just like, Slash just looking at each other like, I don't fucking know, man. I think we're fine on our own. We don't need this shit. We're the best musicians in these bands. We should just book it. (laughs) Like, do you want to start a band, man? The Slash and Grohl's show. They should. (laughs) Slash and Grohl. But uh, eventually... You know, they literally had to be restrained oh, with people oh, because shit. shit was going to come to blows. So that that was the day that the Guns N' Roses and Nirvana feud started. Right. And then Nirvana went out to pl- to do their performance. And <laughs> before they even went to, to start Lithium, Kurt started playing the chords to Rape Me oh, live on television. Yes. And as soon as so as soon as the producers of the show were ready to cut to commercial, they launched into lithium. Hilarious. Damn. Fucking hilarious. And then Damn at the Kurt. end of the performance, Dave starts screaming like taunts at Axel Rose, while Chris Novoselic threw his bass up in the air, <laughs> fucked up catching it, and it smashed him in the head, and he oh. got like a head injury from it. Oh my god, is this on is this on YouTube? Yes, it is. Oh, I'm you watching can, this afterwards. You can, yeah, just uh YouTube Fuck. the the video for the oh, we, their I'll performance. Make sure we post this on like Twitter and Facebook oh, and yeah. shit because oh my god. I don't think any of the uh, the blow the uh, insults back and forth backstage oh. is on god damn video, it. but we can try and look for it. Yeah, you never know. Yeah, yeah. it's a crazy place. Yeah, but that's I always go b- right back to that whenever I hear rate me. <laughs> oh my god, that's so funny. So, for obvious reasons, Rate Me became a pretty controversial song. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kurt always insisted that it was literally about rape and his complete disdain for rape culture and misogyny. But the fact that it was actually written in 1991 while Nevermind was being mixed but not released until 1993 caused some people to think it was actually about the media's treatment of the Cobains in the wake of Courtney's uh, uh, Vanity Fair article. Okay. Which I can Which see I can that. See that. <laughs> Which I can see I that. Can that. <laughs> Kurt often stated that his lyrics literally have no meaning or nothing to do with anything. Um, that they're mostly a hodgepodge of lines taken from random poems from his notebooks, and any meaning derived from them are the interpretations of others, not himself. Out of any of his songs, I feel like that could be accurate with this one. And because mm-hmm. I mean, he does have that connection to the Riot Girl movement, which was still going pretty strong back then. He's he... still friends with a lot of the women in the movement, so I could see him writing a song for them, you know, as an outcry to misogyny and bullshit yeah. like that. And he had always been a real supporter of women's rights. Yeah. Um, through the whole. Oh yeah. Um, nineties feminist life. movement. He's, he's he's never been a piece of shit about women. He's always yeah. treated them very equally. Yeah. Um. And his responses to instances of rape and misogyny often bordered on total rage and violence. He, yeah, yeah. he was really militant about it. Um, so it was inevitable that he would write a song about it. Mm-hmm. But since the song was written in 91, it could have had that anti-rape message in the beginning, but took on a whole other meeting, meaning after the media frenzy of 92 and 93. It's true. 
in a sense, the Cobains were being raped by the media, constantly oh, yeah. being dragged for their personal choices and how they were raising their child. Kurt even acknowledged to Michael Azarad that he could use the song as an example of his life within the last few months before recording the song. So Damn. I think it originally was about rape culture mm-hmm. and his complete fucking disdain about it. Um, but yeah, it, I think it after a while it kind of got... Yeah, um, his anger can definitely infuse itself into the lyrics, and then he becomes. This was it is a. This is what it was about, and now I'm just angry, right? In general, at right. my life. Now at there's everybody. a whole new level of anger to yeah. go on top of it. Layers, layers. So <laughs> you know, just don't got layers like a fucking bean dip. Like a like a like you know taco dip a taco dip yeah. taco bean dip oh taco dip seven layer good. taco dip that's what rape me is like okay sure yup <laughs> going with it <laughs> anyway the next song is called Francis Farmer will have her revenge on Seattle. So Scentless Apprentice was not the only song on the album that with a prevailing literary reference. Hmm. Frances Farmer Will Have Her Revenge on Seattle is about real-life golden age actress uh, Frances (laughs) Farmer, (laughs) who Kurt became obsessed with after reading her biography Shadowland in high school. Damn. Yeah. All right, so this is a bunch of literary songs. Yeah. I like it. He actually read things. I believe it. (laughs) He said he could empathize with her and often related her story to his and Courtney's own troubles with media persecution. Mm -hmm. So Frances Farmer started as a stage actress and eventually moved her talents to the big screen, working with big names like Cary Grant. But starting in 1942, rumors of increasingly erratic behavior began to surface. She was arrested and committed to psychiatric institutions several times, Mm -hmm. and eventually she was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Her family brought her back home to Seattle, and she stayed committed there until 1950. While she was committed, she endured unspeakable horrors. Yeah, because, you know, back in those Institutions days... Institutions were ooh, really no, bad places. Not great. Not super. Really, really bad. They did not treat people committed to these places like human beings. Nope. Um, they made zero attempts to have them get better and it's basically like once you were thrown in there you were done yeah people just forgot about you yeah so she endured repeated gang raping shock therapy and being forced to eat her own feces there was even a rumor that she had a lobotomy although um it was never really it it wasn't able to be confirmed that she got it um essentially as soon as that rumor got started her parents like went to the institution and were like, we want her out. Oh, so now we've decided we're going to yeah. draw the line. Yeah. Yeah. Not the feces eating. It was the lobotomy ice, that made us decide to come Ice picking half of her brain out was the line. Oh, okay. Good <laughs> to know nice. where you stand. Thanks, Dad. Thanks, parents. 
God, you're good at this. So she attempted to come back after she was released from the psychiatric hospital. Yeah, she tried. She tried. Uh, But by that time, Hollywood had pretty much fully rejected her and she never regained the career she once had. She ended up becoming a maid at a hotel and she died in 1970 of cancer. It's really fucking sad. Damn. Really sad. Uh, but unlike Rape Me, this song is clearly a reference to the Vanity Fair article and subsequent persecution by the media. Much like how Hollywood chewed up and spit out Francis Farmer, Seattle did the same to the Cobains. Granted, Francis Farmer's story is much more dire than Kurt and Courtney's, but the message is clear. Everyone that has done them harm in some way will pay for it. The, la- the last few lines wow, of the right. song bring home this desire for revenge. She'll come back as fire to burn all the liars and leave a blanket of ash on the ground. A blanket of me. Oh, <laughs> get it. Oh, my God. The worst. <laughs> See, I thought this song was about his daughter because Francis is his daughter's name. Yeah. And so a did lot of he name his daughter after her. A lot of people think that they named their daughter after okay. Francis Farmer. But... So I get to be a scrub like everyone else. <laughs> but co- cool. Well, Courtney says that they named her Frances after uh, the lead singer of the Vaselines. Her name oh. is also Frances. Okay. Courtney, you can't take anything she says as truth. Yeah. So I think maybe it was a combination of the two because they were both fucking obsessed with Frances Farmer. Courtney wore Frances Farmer's dress as her wedding dress. What? So, yeah. I think it's safe to say they probably named their daughter after her. Francis Farmer, yeah. I would say I've decided, I don't care what you say, that's the story. Basically, anytime Courtney says something, I don't care what you say, Courtney. (laughs) I know what the story is. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Speaking of Courtney, the next song is called Dumb. (laughs) I see what you did there, though. I'm not let down, back in the town, the sun is gone, Dumb is one of the few songs in Nirvana's repertoire. Repertoire. Ooh, I said it. Repertoire. Repertoire. That they describe as being a straight up pop song. Not really top 40 pop. No. That's not the kind of pop they're talking about. But Michael Azarad gives a pretty good description by saying it's Beatlesque. Sure. A little bit. All right. Yeah. Okay. To go along with the quote-unquote poppy arrangement, the subject matter attempted to be more lighthearted as well, but of course it was mostly about heroin, which to Kurt is lighthearted. I bet the Red Hot Chili Peppers loved this song. (laughs) Yeah, I said it. Come for me. (laughs) Because they're dumb? No, because they're all heroin addicts. Not all of them. Everybody except for Flea. Really? Um, definitely Anthony Kiedis and John that, Frusciante. Is he the one who For died? Real. No. Who? No, and then they had a guitarist who died because of heroin. Oh. Whose name I can't remember. I want to say it's Chris something, but I think I'm wrong. I don't know. 
Uh, you know what? That'll be it. That'll be in a Red Hot Chili Peppers episode. We're never doing a Red Hot Chili oh, Peppers episode. Oh, we are 100% doing one. I'm going to I just sit here. Watch you with your fucking <laughs> arms folded like me. Like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> fucking hate them. Yeah, but their story, that'd be fun to make fun there, of. Isn't their drummer's name Chad? <laughs> it is! It is, though. He Reason started, number one not to like him. He's a super group with Sammy Hagar. Uh, Reason number two not to like him. Sammy Hagar's favorite meal of the day is brunch. <laughs> You're welcome. Are you talking about Sammy Hagar or Guy Fieri? Oh, Sammy Hagar. But it did the get same person for a hot second. They're the same person. They're the same person. He's like a walking mustard and ketchup packet. We really strayed from Nirvana here. Anyway. <laughs> that was my bad. Going back to dumb. <laughs> Speaking of dumb. So... <laughs> The second verse says, my heart is broke, but I have some glue. Help me inhale and mend it with you. We'll float around and hang out on clouds. Then we'll come down and have a hangover. Yeah, that's inhaling, hanging out on clouds, having a hangover afterwards, clearly describing a drug trip. Drugs are what brought Court court and Courtney, 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 Courtney together. Drugs are what made them happy. Hence, happy song about drugs. Yeah. Next song. And next song. Drugs about songs. Wait. Drugs about songs. Songs about drugs. Drugs about songs. Long episode. We got to get snappy. All right. Okay. Next song. Uh, Very ape. Very ape. (laughs) Not just kind of ape. Very ape. has one of my favorite lyrics mm-hmm. that Kurt has ever written. If you ever need anything, please don't hesitate to ask someone else first. <laughs> I feel that's, like... Like, that's kind of my motto. I feel like I want to make that home. sign, you know, the fancy canvas believe in yourself bullshit sign. Cross-stitched. But make it like that and we can put them in our cubicles. Oh, yeah. And then the, I'm so bad, girls will know not to come to you. Why can't we go to, like, Hobby Lobby and find one of those things as one of those cutesy little yeah but because because it doesn't say like have your best day ever do something amazing today do something amazing oh my god i'm so bad (sighs) okay we're done (laughs) they all just turn in the grunge it's fine so i'm i'm gonna try and be brief with this song because there's not a whole lot to say about it okay but uh it appears to be a mockery of manly men oh. which is kind of a, yeah. a thing with kurt because he did the same thing within bloom off mm-hmm. of nevermind um it's like men who have an overabundance of pride in their intelligence and self-worth in a way it may be kurt mocking himself for not being that kind of guy and often courtney would insult him for not being more well-read so maybe really? yeah courtney love okay, courtney would insult her about not being more well i feel like read. half of my hot takes right now are just being angry at courtney love <laughs> it's just courtney really great <laughs> please courtney tell me more about how fucking well read you are yeah yep. sociopath <laughs> anyway continue um so uh 
So this might be his response to that. Kind of like saying, I don't need to be like those guys because those guys are douchebags. But even Kurt once said, I really don't have any idea what the song is about. Bullshit. Huh. Whatever, Kurt. Really? I've never heard heard Kurt say that before. Never? Never. Not a single time. Not this entire album. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, he kind of had the same message with In Bloom. Because In Bloom was kind of about those, like douchey bros that go to nirvana shows because they think it makes them real hardcore oh yeah so they like stand you know in the pit and just stand there and like oh my god and like push people around but then they'll turn around and go home and like fucking get their guns and go hunting the next day and be real douchebags and touch themselves the whole time yeah and kurt really fucking hated guys like like that they would hunt they would hunt animals, but leave the carcasses, is what you're saying. Kind of. They're like, those kind of assholes who they are like, take a lot I of... shot a deer, but I'm not going to do anything with yeah. it. Yeah. Don't use what you kill. Just oh, cool. kill Just it. Just kill it, because you're yeah. cool like that. Yeah. Uh, so the next song is Milk It. one of the raunchier songs on the album oh it's a little grittier oh. it's a little more like rolling around in the dirt if you will a little blue collar a little more blue collar mm, okay. um this was the direction nirvana wanted to go to as a band okay and had they had the chance to make another album after this one they probably would have explored this darker and grittier sound that they found in milk it it does harken back to the theme of codependence Kurt felt with Courtney. Mm-hmm. I own my own pet virus. I get to pet and name her. Her milk is my shit. My shit is her milk. Ugh, okay. It's pretty gross, but Ugh. like it's their, their codependence was gross. All right. So. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but anyway, that's it for that song. Next one is Penny Royalty. Oh, my God. My time yeah i i like the unplugged version of this a lot more than i liked the version on the album in utero I mean, yeah, definitely. I feel like the unplugged versions of everything was just amazing. Nirvana was one of those bands that did Unplugged just so fucking good. They made Unplugged as good as it was. I think they did one of the better Unplugged. Yeah. But also, I don't think that they were prepared to do it at all. Which I think made it better. I think, I, I don't know, I enjoyed the complete just i don't know what i'm fucking doing this of it yeah like 
Kurt didn't know no. like half the lyrics to the covers that they did. Yeah. <laughs> like and um I remember I don't remember where I heard this story, but I heard a story about how they had a lot of problems with Dave during the unplugged because he could not get the soft drumming technique down oh. he just wanted to fucking bang the drums right and they didn't want him to and he just couldn't fucking do it Dave and Grohl they kept an animal in human form oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um <laughs> but like he just they kept yelling at him then they kept having to stop because they were like dave you're too fucking loud dave what the fuck <laughs> i just want to bang on the drums all day guys <laughs> i don't want to work <laughs> just want to bang on the drum all day God, I hope one of them made that joke because <laughs> if they didn't, missed opportunity. Super missed opportunity. <laughs> but anyway, so this is another song that was actually written in 1990, but it it was also one of the fastest songs Nirvana has ever written. Mm-hmm. Kurt s- claims he wrote it in about 30 seconds, which I think is a exaggeration. A um, and the lyrics only took another half an hour. It was slated to be the third single off the album, but the idea was shelved after Kurt's suicide in April 1994. Um, Penny Royal is an herb commonly associated with with its abortive properties. Oh. Historically, it was used to get rid of unwanted pregnancies, but you also had to drink, like, gallons of it in order for it to work. And it also had fatal properties associated with it. So basically... You could get rid of the baby, but you, could also but you get were rid getting of rid of yourself at the same time. Uh, Kurt said he was trying to go for a cleansing theme with this song, relating the idea of aborting a fetus to cleansing himself of depression. Oh, um, I think it also had something to do with his own physical ailments. His unrelenting stomach mm-hmm. issues that he'd been dealing with for years were clearly highlighted in the lines, I'm on warm milk and laxatives, cherry flavored antacids. Oh. Obviously, he's talking about his stomach issues. I mean, though, arguably, the cherry flavored antacids are best antacids. They are. I mean, when I'm out and I'm popping my tums, I don't like e- <laughs> we do when we go out, I'm always on that cherry. I'm usually an Alka-Seltzer girl. So the orange flavored is disgusting. Yeah. Uh, Cherry flavored is tolerable. Lemon lime is the best. Oh, all right. Good to know. (laughs) So this was a phys. This was a physical problem that Kurt couldn't get away from. He had excruciating stomach pains for years, and it often prevented him from performing or leaving his house. Today, I think if he was still alive, he would definitely be diagnosed with a severe form of Crohn's disease. So, yeah, like he he never really went to a doctor to get really diagnosed. Or if he did go to a doctor, they were just like, no, no, you just got stomach problems. Wasn't really well known back then. Right. I don't think it was really a thing anybody was diagnosed with until the last maybe 15 years. Right. Probably around around like 2000. Yeah. They would have figured it out if he was still alive. So if he had. Damn. Yeah. So I think. I think if he was still alive, it would be something that was totally treatable yeah. and could have really helped him yeah. if he was still alive. But he was, like, tortured by his stomach issues. Well, yeah, Crohn's disease is terrible. Yeah. Um, but he would also blame his drug use on his stomach problems. Right. On his stomach problems. He claimed to have started smoking marijuana at a young age to calm his symptoms, 
But by 1990, he had a full-fledged heroin addiction, and he said the heroin would stop his stomach pain, but it's more likely he was too fucked up to pay attention to the pain. Bingo. It's It didn't take the pain away. It was just he was in a completely other state and didn't pay attention to it. It was exactly. still there. Oh, yeah. He was just having, like, a rest from it. Oh, my God. Because yeah. he was in another fucking world. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty easy to correlate Kurt's ailment to the use of pennyroyal tea to induce an abortion. Get the bad things out of your stomach with the help of an outside and not entirely legal thing. Right. Of course. Oh. So the next two songs on the album, I don't think we even need to play them. Because oh, okay. they're... they're not great. Yeah, they're they're good songs, but they're there's not much to say about they're them. Fine songs. Yeah, and I'm sure we're running way over already anyway because I'm talking too much. But the next song, <laughs> I'm also peanut gallerying a lot. <laughs> so the next two songs are Radio Friendly Unit Shifter oh, and yeah. Tourette's. Radio. Which, I've well, always been curious about Tourette's. Please explain this to me. <laughs> well, Radio Friendly Unit Shifter basically is just a reference to Nevermind. Oh, because if you think about it, Nevermind was their radio friendly album yeah. used specifically to make money, hence unit shifter. So mm-hmm. moving units means just getting them out there to make money oh. while it had a really, you know, radio friendly sound. So that's it. They're pretty much just making fun of their own album. Right. Tourette's. It's, it's Tourette's. <laughs> it's just about Tourette's. It is just about Tourette's. The original no meeting. Yeah. The original lyric sheet for Tourette's simply said, fuck shit piss. That's it. That's not what he's actually saying in the song. He said he just picked like random lines from random notebooks and just screamed them into a microphone. That's all Tourette's is. It's like a cathartic thing for him to just be screaming into a microphone. All right. That's that's fair. I guess it's not what Tourette's is, but okay, yeah, it's sure. It's not what Tourette's is at all. Sure, Kurt. But it's like the mainstream idea of what Tourette's is. Because right. people think Tourette's is just people screaming obscenities. It's not. It's actually like ticks. Yeah, it's and, vocal. And or it could be a visual tick as well. Right. Physical, I mean. And yeah, you can say random things that's out of your control, but it's it's mainly just uncontrollable text. The the swearing actually is an extreme version of Tourette's. Most people either have a facial tick or mm-hmm. they might have a verbal tick, but it's usually just like a, a gruddle, a kind of grunt. Yeah. It's not always a swear. Yeah. And even when it's at a vocal level, it isn't necessarily always a swear. Sometimes they just say random words. Right. Like, house! And you're like, what? <laughs> like, sorry! <laughs> I love yeah. that show. <laughs> it's a great show! <laughs> So the last song on the album is All Apologies. Apologies was the second single off the album, released in December 1993. 
It was released on a single with Rape Me and the decidedly grossly named song Moist Vagina as the B-side. <laughs> why? That song is the reason why I think the word moist is disgusting. <laughs> Oh, moist doesn't actually bother me. I hate the word. Eh. A lot of people hate the word moist, though. I know. I think, you know what, though? I'm saying it. I think some people say it bothers them because it's trendy to say it bothers you. Oh, no. It has bothered me since moist vagina. I'm not saying you. I'm just (laughs) saying, I think, you know, I like the word moist. Mm, I don't think, I don't think you feel that way. You're just saying that. About the word Moist. 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 Oh my god, and we have lost 20 <laughs> listeners. So, as mentioned numerous times before, Kurt would often insist his song lyrics have no meaning. And all apologies, of course, was no exception. Of course. But he did dedicate the song to Courtney and Francis at a show in Reading, England. Aww. And he said that the feeling of the song, happier and more upbeat than most Nirvana songs, related to his family, but the lyrics did not. Kurt also said that the lighter, more dynamic sound, All Apologies and Bodies, was one he wished was more prominent on previous Nirvana albums. He summarized the song's mood by saying it was peaceful, happy, comfort, just happy happiness. That's a happy Nirvana song. <laughs> Which is kind of sad that that's a happy Nirvana song. Because it, <laughs> it's, it's, it's... Not happy. I mean, it has a melody and yeah. you can tap your foot to it, but also there's that underlying feeling of melancholy that every single nirvana song has yeah like he can't help it yeah he he might be trying to write a really happy song but he can't fucking do it guys this is me being really happy oh really okay okay Okay. sure 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 kurt (laughs) so after the album was finished the band sent it to the president of the record label geffen records for final approval the verdict as Kurt said, the grown-ups don't like it. Oh. <laughs> Apparently, they told him that it was unlistenable. What? Yeah. That's a little much, because it's actually a really good album. It, right. But considering the clout Nirvana had at the time, they could pretty much do whatever they wanted. Nevermind was such a massive hit that they recorded with Steve Albini, even though Geffen didn't want them to. And that didn't stop Kurt from taking their disapproval of the record hard, almost to paranoia levels. He was convinced he had to scrap the entire album and start all over again from scratch with a completely different producer. But thankfully, friends love the album, and that helped convince Kurt to keep the original recordings. As someone who has weird social anxieties, I understand that feeling of when you hear one person say, this is trash, you decide that it is trash. Yeah. My life is trash. Everything's awful. And you will do whatever you need to do to scrap the entire thing and redo it yeah. and make it to likable levels. And I think Kurt kind of went down that spiral. Oh, definitely. Because the record company, who really had no idea what know. the fuck they were they talking fuck, about. What the fuck do record companies know? They're robbing you blind anyway. Exactly. So fuck them. And I think that's what people convinced him of was they don't know what the fuck they're talking about you need to do what you want and if this is an album that you really love then fuck them they're gonna put it out anyway no matter what you do because they want that money and they know at least the nirvana name will sell right and it did and even though some people were not into it it still went to number one immediately the first week it came out people were pumped to get a nirvana album But all wasn't exactly perfect. Both Kurt and Chris thought the bass and vocals were too muddy and inaudible, and the band decided to remix some of the tracks. Okay. 
Steve Albini refused to do it. Okay. And he was kind of a jerk about it, too. Okay. Big surprise. Huh. He said he didn't want to do it because he thought everyone was happy with the recording as it was, but two weeks later, he was informed it wasn't good enough. But when Nirvana decided to remix some tracks with producer Scott Litt, Albini threw a fit and insisted he had an agreement with Nirvana that they would not alter any of the tracks without his involvement oh, okay. because apparently Zigo can't fucking handle it. Sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> but they, okay. yep. they, they ended up remixing a few of the tracks with Scott Litt anyway, and those are the ones that ended up on the album. Oh, okay. And it was like Heart Shaped Box and uh, I think All Apologies and something else. were Like the singles are what right. they remixed. Right, what they wanted just to be a little cleaner. Right. Because... You gotta do what you gotta do to get on the radio. Even though you you wanted the specific, very uh, bass level kind of sound mm-hmm. with this album, you still need to have singles. Yeah, that's just the way of it with a major label. You have to have singles. And so, if the meeting ground is okay, you can put this out, but clean up a couple songs. Fine. Right. That's that's a perfectly fine, reasonable middle of the road to meet. Right. So the album was released in the U.S. on September 14th, 1993, and quickly shot to the top of the charts. The success of the album was relatively short-lived, however, because on April 8th, 1994, only eight months after the album was released, Kurt was found dead of an apparent gunshot wound to the head, and Nirvana consequently disbanded for good, making In Utero the last studio album ever released by one of the biggest and most influential bands in rock history. And making any of the naysayers fucking hate themselves after that. So fuck Basically. you. Fuck you, bitches. <laughs> fuck you, guy from Q Magazine. Fucking, I hope you fucking hate yourself. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, there were pretty much two pretty apparent themes through the whole thing. Yeah. Like I said before, it was mostly about the media scrutiny that Kurt and Courtney were under the whole time. Yeah. And it, it was really kind of ironic that he was trying to go more towards this melodic, a little bit happier right. kind of uh, message mixed with this very gritty kind of music to back it up. When he was going through a really fucking shitty time when his heroin use was out of control. Yeah. So. I can't imagine what it must have been like when he was away with everyone because he was probably you'd have to still be using there's no fucking way he would be able to perform going through withdrawal so we'd have to still after be using. this no during the what was it two weeks that they were away in minnesota, Mi- uh, minnesota. yeah minnesota doing doing the recording I oh mean, yeah he had to be using every day there's no Absolutely. way of course he was yeah but uh but yeah. i just wonder like how frustrating that must have been for the rest of the band too because like you're and i there. think i think that was part of the reason why courtney showed up too because mm. Everybody said, well, she just showed up because she really missed Kurt. I think Kurt was running out of heroin. He's like, yo, show up. Give me some <laughs> fucking heroin. Because there's nobody here. There's no heroin in the trees here, babe. I fucking need my heroin. <laughs> right. She needed it. Just, yeah. And you could probably argue, too, that this album is maybe just his last call for help, even. Of like, guys, I'm drowning in this bullshit. Yeah, and who who around here is going to help me? Yeah. Because nobody could really help him. And I think his relationship with Courtney 
really prevented anybody from getting very close to him because even in the book Come As You Are, I got the sense that even though they were a band and they had been friends for a really long time, they weren't really close. They, as soon as they weren't recording or performing, they were all over the place. Like, they all lived in different places. They weren't hanging out with each other. And most of the people that Kurt and Courtney hung out with were also heroin addicts. Right. So... It, it was a pretty dire situation, I think, at this point for Kurt. Yeah. With all the media scrutiny they were going through and the absolute torture of having their newborn child taken away from them. And <sighs> that's awful. You know, you're trying to be a little bit happy and it's not going to happen. No, it's really. It's not. That's not. It, he basically needed someone to kidnap him and lock him away clean him up and be like you can never go near courtney again right and like going to some bullshit rehab place isn't you know the place where he went uh right before he right, passed right, away right. that wasn't gonna happen yeah a celebrity rehab place isn't gonna be <laughs> if shit you can you. literally he literally just jumped the wall yeah he jumped the wall and walked away yeah and like hours later people are like where where's kirk go oh he jumped the wall like five hours ago oh okay (laughs) all right then yeah i mean for what it's worth and this is of course will be a more intense topic for a more intense episode whether directly or indirectly courtney love has responsibility for kurt cobain's death oh yeah absolutely like again whether indirectly or directly that's all i'm gonna say for now on the topic we can rant about that when we get to that yeah. episode. I'm personally, I think it's indirect, which I'm sure is a surprise to most people because I fucking hate her. Oh, you can and still I'm, hate her and think she didn't kill him. But I was <laughs> but I was super obsessed with Nirvana and Kurt Cobain when I was younger. And like when I was younger, I was convinced she one hundred percent killed him. I don't think so anymore. I think she had a hand in it, but it was indirect for sure. There's some really convincing documentaries oh, there's, out yes, there. Yes, there are. And but again. Convincing books as well. So. Again. It's not for today. No. Today was for talking about that's for a when pretty we, fucking awesome album. That's for when we decide to be private eyes and like oh my go God. real in depth. Just drunk private eye ladies. And then we can like do some kind of four week dateline shit on that. Oh my God. Just me walking around. I'm going to have a fucking brown bag. You'll have a flask and we'll keep them in our trench coats. <laughs> My trench coat's gonna be all just forties. <laughs> Your sister coat's gonna have like at least. Mine can flasks. be flasks. And we're just like, what are we doing? I forgot. What? Who? Courtney Love? She's a bitch. Yes, she is. Let's drink. That's what's gonna happen when we become private eyes. We. And we, I'm really excited. We about do this. the research real good. We research real good. We research when we're sober. We talk about it when we're drunk. It's fine. If anything should be our catch line, it's that. <laughs> Research when we're sober. Research sober. Talk about it drunk. There you go. How else are you gonna get this? This is, you're never gonna get this anywhere else, people. Yeah. So but anyway, I hope everyone enjoyed that. I hope it wasn't too dry. I don't think it was dry. Oh, good. It's a nice. <laughs> it's a lot of information. It's a lot of information. But you know what? It, re-listening to it now, I'm like, oh yeah. You know what? This is a really fucking good album. It's really good. I like In Utero so much more than I like Nevermind. Yeah. Um and yeah. Honestly, out of their three studio albums that they made, 
Nevermind is number three. Yeah. So. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Because honestly, I could go the rest of my life, and I don't know how many more years that is, but I could go the rest of my life and never hear fucking Smells Like Teen Spirit again and could, be perfectly fine. I could probably never hear, uh, never listen to Nevermind ever again and still be able to play the entire album start to finish in my head. And that's fine. <laughs> and that's all you need. That's all I that's need. All all right, guys. Well, I think we're going to round it up now. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Appreciate your support and following us and hanging out, getting your information from a very trusted source. Two Me. drunk ladies. Me! <laughs> <laughs> Ashley reads books. <laughs> and I've read this one like eight times. So You're like, I didn't even really need to read this I again. didn't, Al. <laughs> but, uh, you know. If you could and wouldn't, please follow us on the things. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Rock Candy Podcast and Twitter at Rock Candy Pod. You can leave us a review on iTunes. That'd be cool. We'd like that. Five star reviews only, though. You know, if you're going to do less, don't bother. You know, I mean, we only expect the best. Unequivocally. Is that right? Uh, yeah, unequivocally. Unequivocally love us? Yeah. Then, then did fuck you, off. Yeah. So, did you, don't even bother. I'm kidding. We, we'll take whatever we can get. We're just, we're, we're, we're dying here. Uh, you can visit our website, www.rockcandypodcast.com. Listen to us on TuneIn, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, you know, wherever you can get your little podcasts from. And, you know. Just keep keep on rocking. I don't know. I ran out of things to say. We're in a weird place. This is odd. Do we get, I honestly have felt weird this whole night because this is not normal. It's not. So with There's that, even different dogs. It's different weird. dogs. It's a different place. It probably sounds different. The beer's different. You know what? It probably sounds better. It probably does sound way better, though. <laughs> Sorry. I'll be better at sound someday, guys. Don't worry. <laughs> And with that, party on, Ashley. Party on, Maggie. Party on, you crazy kids out there. Bye. Bye. Celebrate me.